Hello and welcome back to Chat the Great, the podcast that delves into conversations with people from all fields who we admire. People who achieve things due to their professionalism and determination. And you know what? Just generally people to learn from. Oh, and what a show we've got coming up for you today because our next guest is the amazing Mike Smith. Now, Mike Smith is the global president of Downtown Music Publishing and one of the most relevant people in music history, signing and working with bands such as Blur, Gorillaz, The White Stripes, The Libertines, Arctic Monkeys, Arcade Fire, Stormzy, Liam Gallagher, Skepta, Foo Fighters, and I can go on and on. There are so many bands that he signed. Before being managing director at Warner Chapel UK, his main gig has been A&R discovering and launching bands. His first ever signing was Blur when he was only 22, but he has also run labels as Columbia Records, Mercury Records and Virgin EMI. He's basically a living legend and a huge name in the music industry as well. We chat everything from music to life to how he got his success and where he started and working with bands like Blur and also how he just missed out on signing Oasis. It's a really, really interesting chat and so many stories to be had. Yeah, Louis, talking to Mike Smith was so special. It was a massive honor. Normally we chat with our guests around like one hour, one hour and a half, but we talked more than two hours. So prepare yourself for a masterpiece, Mike Smith. So now we're delighted to be joined on the Chat the Great podcast with the amazing Mike Smith. Thank you so much for joining us, Mike. It's a pleasure to have you. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very flattered. Thank you. Yeah. So we like to go quite far. We like to kind of go to the first part of the journey for you on this podcast. We like to go back to the kind of very beginnings. So can you remember the first kind of performance or something that you saw on stage that you really connected with and it left kind of like a lasting impression and kind of blew you away and got you into kind of looking at music in that sort of way? Yeah, I, well, there used to be a club in... Liverpool in the the early well late seventies early eighties um, called uh, Eric's and it was an amazing club. It was a club where every ideologically sound person it felt in um, in the city was, and it was a great way. It was a great place to hang out if you were a little bit different. Um, and it, it just felt it felt like the coolest place on the planet. Yeah. Um, obviously 14 year 14 years old i think when it shut um but i was lucky enough they used to do matinees because they'd do like a saturday afternoon matinee for kids like me to get into but i i managed to get smuggled in <laughs> by a mate of mine is it mate of mine nick neil is um his sister was in um in dalek i love you with under the id i think it was with andy mccluskey from omd anyway long story short she gets us in and we get to see uh, Atletico Spiz 80, who just changed their name from Spiz Energy, who had a bit of a, probably most famous for a song called Where's Captain Kirk? And they're, they're sort of like on the more surreal end of sort of like punk rock, new wave, post-punk. Uh, still going now, still battling on, uh, fit and strong. Um, but they, it was just being in that room it was really scary and intimidating, but incredible at the same time. And all of a sudden, the, the rather conservative with a small C and a big C 
kind of life I'd been growing up with in, you know, suburban Merseyside just was sort of like trashed. And, and I, I, my eyes, you know, it, my eyes were opened. And because it, it was just this great multicultural mix, you know, there were, you know, it, it was, a, it was a place where you'd get, you know, kids from Toxteth who didn't necessarily want to hang out there and, and listen to, to like Caribbean music. Yeah. You'd get, it was a very safe place for gays at a time when being gay could really, you know, was, was, a, was a call to arms. And most of the, you know, there was a lad at school, he, he came out when he was 15 and you had to be hard, you know, and, um, you know, cause people would try and, you know, have a go at you and you had to stand your ground. And um, Matthew Burns from Dead or Alive, he was a regular at the club and he was a regular. The club was at the top end of Matthew Street in Liverpool and the bottom end of the street was Probe Records. And Pete Burns, who at the time was like, you know, about six foot four, you know, <laughs> pin thin, uh, scary as anything, you know. And, uh, and just with this, well, you know the drawl that he has, that disparaging. So going in and buying a record from there was just the most, you know, terrifying experience you could have <laughs> you were in this room with all of these amazing looking people because it's just sort of like you know 1980 you know the fact you know you, you you're still sort of like feeling a hangover from punk rock new waves in full speed um everyone's wearing great makeup boys and girls yeah. everyone's wearing outlandish clothes and i was just so in and it it, it absolutely changed my life and I'd loved music before that, but this just gave me a plug. It just, I don't know, it just connected within me and it was just like, this is it. This is my life. This is what I want to do. I want to be around these people. Because I wasn't a musician, but I want to be around people like you. Yeah. It's a community, isn't it? That's what music's all yeah. about. It's being around that like-minded community. And I, and I love that a lot. Because you went to study in Manchester as well, didn't you? Yeah. 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 Well, when, when I, I, I left Liverpool when I was 16. So I left Liverpool in the summer of 82 because my dad's job had relocated to Bristol. Yeah. So that sort of was an opportunity to really reinvent myself. And, you know, maybe some of the things that I'd listened to in the past that were a bit uncool. You know, it's a proper <laughs> kind of Joe Strummer reinvention. I remember taking a load of records down to... Um, the local second-hand record shop and I think with the proceeds from that I got a leather jacket so that was that was pretty much sort of like statement of intent yeah and all the people I well there was basically a cool crowd uh, at my school in Bristol and it was just like how the hell am I going to get to know them but you, you sort of like try and wheedle your way in and they were all massive music fanatics so they opened my eyes up to a whole world of music but at the same time, I was still going back and seeing my mates on, um, on the Wirral up in Merseyside. And they were all, you know, big music fans. So uh, they, they, you know, whenever we got together, the guitars had come out and we'd just sit around and, and jam. I mean, I, I, all I could do, I'd sing along or I'd bang a tambourine or I'd draw pictures. And that, that <laughs> really is the sum limit. I, I, do, I, I have played bass guitar. I have sung in a band, but, you know, they're all pretty limited experiences. <laughs> Long before the invention of YouTube, thank God. So, you know, can't spare, take those up. <laughs> oh, thank God for that. Um, I couldn't get into London because to get into London, you needed a, to study um, 
humanities, you needed to mm. get a, uh, a French uh, O-level. And I was just, I mean, I can speak French reasonably well now, but I, I probably because I took it five times, failed every time. <laughs> so, so I wanted to get that and, and go, because London was the place. It was just like, whoa, that's, that's where it's all happening. Couldn't get into London. So I wanted to go back up north and I ended up at Manchester. Wow. So yeah, it's quite a, well, but it's nice that you surround yourself with people who love music just as much as you do. Cause I think that's important because yeah. my friends were the same. Like we always used to go to gigs and like, I think that just makes you such much more of a music lover, doesn't it? It makes you stronger. And I, I love that. And it's just, it well, shapes you. Yeah, that's it. If you're I mean, really, you know, cemented the idea of musical discovery, cause I'd be the one, um, what was it called? The, the Bristol, it was called venue, the Bristol what's on guide, the equivalent of Time Out. Yeah. And I'd scour that every every week it came out, find out what were the good new acts to go and see, or maybe some of the bigger bands that you know that we loved, and uh, we'd go out and find them. And I I got just as excited about seeing, you know, sort of like unheard of acts that we really liked, um, or discovering oh maybe this band's going to be great. There was a band called the Crazy Trains that were a bit sort of like Johnny Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers, kind of like old school rock and roll slash punk. We loved them. Colonel Kilgore's Vietnamese formation surf team. They were particularly <laughs> brilliant. Um, they, they, they all dressed in um, sort of like American Vietnam gear um, and, you know, came on to the, the Ride of the Valkyries by Wagner and played surf punk really fast and really loud what's not to love you know, so, <laughs> and, and there, were, there, there were bands that you know we used to go and see that actually went on to be something that were just starting out uh there's a band called the brilliant corners there was a band called the blue aeroplanes that had quite a bit of success um so it was great because i'd be the one that would be finding the gigs to go to and dragging all my mates out to go and see them with me so it's sort of like, I think from about the age of 17, I definitely felt that's, that's what I like doing. That's what I am. Yeah. And, um, and going to Manchester, it, you know, I was so lucky. It was like within two or three days there, um, I, messed, I met my best mate, and he's still my best mate now. His, uh, his name's Ben Wardle. And he, um, he was from southeast London. I mean, like most of the people I knew in Manchester, it turned out were from London because they all... They're all looking for another college to get away to. And yeah. Manchester's probably the nearest thing to London in terms of this great northern metropolis. And um, and I met this lad, Ben, who, uh, he was from southeast London. So I went, oh, southeast London, do you know, you know, do you know are you a fan of Squeeze? Because I loved Squeeze. And they were yeah. a band, band from southeast London. I'm still going today, I'm glad to say. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he told me an anecdote about how he was around at his best mate's place. And his, uh, his sister was there and they, they were sort of like pretending they weren't there and they were like hiding, I think hiding <laughs> under the beds. And his sister was mates with uh, Chris and Glenn and they, they were around the, the, the house and sort of like my mate Ben and his mate Robert were sort of like hiding under the beds in, in, in his sister's room um, while his sister was there with Glenn and Chris. And they, they were sort of like going uh, D7, um, F7, um, and, and, and Ben was thinking, God, this is amazing. They're writing a song and I'm right here. 
But it actually turned out they were playing battleships. So it was completely, he, he wasn't there to, at the birth of some, some great new sort of like adolescent um, tragedy that, the, that Chris and Glenn were writing. But yeah, so Ben had gone to Manchester to discuss, because the Buzzcocks came from Manchester and yeah. they, the Buzzcocks were his favourite band. And he, he, he had an enormous scratch uh, bass guitar. So obviously, you know, loved his music. And, um, and we just became fast friends. He'd seen The Clash at Lewis Shimodian, which Whoa. if anybody get, go on YouTube, check out The Clash at Lewis Shimodian. It's one of the best gigs The Clash ever played. And my <gasps> mate was there and I was so gutted. But that's so, it. We so just, lucky, Mike. Yeah, so we just lucky. bonded over all that stuff. You know, yeah, and yeah, yeah. I used to go out and just find new bands that we liked. And then we formed a band called Mrs. Mills Party. And as ever with sort of like bands at, at school or at university, it, it isn't very often four like-minded people that all love the clash and we're going to form a band and we're going to change the world. It's just like, okay, where can we find a drummer? Where can we find a singer? Where can we find a guitarist? So you had me and Ben that were sort of like new wave obsessives, you know, really into the singer songwriter thing. We loved Squeeze, we loved Elvis Costello, we loved The Clash. And then our guitarist, um, Dave, he, he was good. He liked punk and post-punk, but he also liked a lot more kind of like proggy stuff. And he was a great guitar player. The singer, complete prog head um, and played a flute which is just sort of like that, you know, not a lot of flutes in New Way, I'm sure you've noticed. <laughs> yeah. um, our, our drummer actually came from, he was, a, he was more from a jazz background, but he was really cool. He'd spent a year in Sudan. He was, he'd been born in Sudan. Um, and he went on to play with the Tindersticks for many years. So he, he was actually the real, the real talent in the group. He was incredible. And we had a keyboard player who was obsessed with Ray Manzarek from The Doors. So... It was this mixture of like 60s psychedelia, um, <laughs> new wave, prog. Um, yeah. I With mean, a bit God of knows. And, and obviously, as I'm not musical, but I can draw and paint, I used to paint a huge mural of Mrs. Mills. And I don't know, if, do you know who Mrs. Mills is? No. Okay, no. so the reason, it's that classic thing. How do we find a band name? And you're sitting there and going, God, what are we going to call ourselves? I don't know, the, the, the crazy record players, the, uh, <laughs> the amazing CD. I mean, it, it's as dumb as that. And we're like looking through boxes of records, desperately trying to find inspiration. And then somebody pulled out one of Ben's records. And it was just like a record called Everybody's Welcome at Mrs. Mills' Party. Mrs. Mills was signed to Parlophone, same label as the Beatles, played the same piano in Abbey Road, she was one of George Martin's artists, played the same piano at Abbey Road that Hey Jude was written on. But she was, it's almost like she, she, she was the kind of girl that would have played the pubs in the East End and played Roll Out the Barrel and um, all the old sort of like East End kind of like musical songs. Yeah. So she was somebody I loved as a kid. And I went, ah, oh, Mrs. Mills, I love Mrs. Mills. And, and, and we all just immediately bonded. So that's how it became Mrs. Mills' party. Um, and I'd paint a picture of her just to ram the point home when we were doing gigs. I mean, at least they know. That's the thing. At least they knew. They knew. They knew. They knew. They knew. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened with the band? What? Why did um, they make it? Ben, 
Ben was doing um, a language degree. So in the third term of his second year, he had to go to Germany for a year and a bit. So he was gone. So my main musical ally in the band was gone. Obviously, I'm a painter, not a musician, but my main musical ally is gone. And um, a lovely guy came in on uh, bass who's gone on to be something very, very big in, in computer engineering over in America. Wow. Um, and he was really into sort of like goth. You know, he had big kind of like peroxide blonde spikes and dreads yeah. and stuff. He was great. Um, so that took the sound in an altogether more kind of like dark, goth, psychedelic sort of way. Um, and I guess if you're thinking of like, and I'm bringing in a lot of what was going on in Manchester. So maybe like a band like the Chameleons who were around at the time, um, elements of that. Uh, but I'd sort of like acknowledge that that wasn't really the kind of thing I wanted to do and sort of like left them, although I still helped them out a bit in like a kind of quasi-management quasi way. Um, but I'd, I'd hooked up with another bunch of mates who um, I felt much more of a musical affinity to. Uh, and they had, um, they called themselves Mambo Square. God knows why, terrible name. And, um, but there you go, you just run what you can with it. That's it. And um, I started managing them. And they, I thought they were great. They sounded like, I, I, if you want to make it, Talking Heads was a massive influence. So if you're comparing them to a contemporary act, it's like something like Everything, Everything. Oh, um, hey. But they love Talking Heads, XTC were much, but, but also Bob Dylan and Nick Drake. So it was kind of like quite jerky um, post-punk with uh, a bit of um, English pastoral thrown in. So like acoustic and electric. Um, and I thought they were great. And <laughs> yeah. we sent off, it's that classic. I really, I mean, I've, and I've been here so many times with bands I've worked with since, you know, we. I got, I got them into recording studios, I put them gigs, we, we played around the country. Um, I was able to get, you know, any, I'd hang outside of the radio, of radio Piccadilly, because like Andy Partridge, who was in the band XTC that we all admired, he was down there because he was promoting a new album. So I'd wait there and give him a CD. And um, I gave Andy Kershaw, who was a Radio 1 DJ, I gave him a CD when I saw him at a, a local gig one night. So I was always carrying pocketfuls of CDs in case, you, in case you bumped into Morrissey or Marky e. Smith when you were out <laughs> and about, which actually sometimes happened. I thought, this is great. We got A&R people up to see us. It felt like we were happening. We're getting reviewed in local papers. We got reviewed in the Manchester Evening News. They used to do a new band demo slot on a Friday. And honest to God, that was one of the greatest musical moments in my life. Seeing the band's name in print with a great review was just, you know, it took a long time for that to be surpassed. And it's like, that was the first time of sort of like actually going, fuck, oh, you know, this is, this is great. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, I, I was thinking this is brilliant. And the band were thinking, well, this is fantastic fun. What am I going to do for a job? And <laughs> I really hope, but so, so, you know, bass player uh, went off to be, I think he went off to be a, an engineer or an architect. Uh, the drummer ended up with British Telecom. Uh, the guitarist who I was very close to, um, he did follow a musical career. He ended up in, um, well, he's a teacher and he teaches 
sound editing and film scoring up in um, in Hertfordshire. Oh uh, the singer went on to be a journalist. And have I forgot anyone? Um, no, so that, that that was sort of like the, the demise of that band. Oh, and the drummer, yeah, the drummer went on to be a fireman. He was oh. the only one, yeah, interesting. He was a local lad that we'd found. And um, yeah, he he, uh, he stayed in Manchester and he was a fireman. So I was suddenly going, oh my God, what am I going to do? So I got into, I, I by now finished at Manchester and I had another job at Manchester working at the International. And the International was just one of the greatest clubs. Used to bring out all of the great American underground bands that came in. Um, there was a thing in the 80s called the Paisley Underground, which was like punk influenced uh, West Coast, largely guitar bands um, oh. that were sort of like, they were influenced by punk, but they were also influenced by, birds, by bands like the Birds and Love and that kind of whole Americana thing. Yeah. Um, but they had a kind of real punk rock spirit to them. So, you know, it was bands like Green on Red and the Dream Syndicate. The Bangles came over, oh, wow. REM came over about, I mean, I saw REM about five times while I was in Manchester and they were just off the scale back then. I mean, incredible band. Because I was taking my, I took my uh, tape into, of Mambo Square into the, the guy that, that ran the club. Um, he said, oh, do you, do you want to have a listen to, we got chatting. He said, oh, do you want to have a listen to all the stuff in there? I've got to put a local band night on. And there was literally a black, plastic bin so high filled with cassettes and I was just like yeah, yeah. And, um, you know no 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 question of sort of you like mean, you know oh maybe I'll get you a beer I mean that was it I think I got a beer out of it um, but good. I got to sort of like go through and listen to all the local music and um, sort of like suggest it for a for a Monday night slot there wow and um, little did I know that because I, I after the band split up I thought oh, I better get off to London London's where you make your name in the music business this is 87 in Manchester by the way and what I didn't realize was that the guy his name was Gareth Evans who'd um, got me listening to demos in his bins he had a band rehearsing in the basement of his club yeah and he managed that band and that band was the Stone Roses and oh. I walked away <laughs> working for the Stone Roses manager to go down to London to get a job as a postboy at Postel Telecommunications, which is the post office pension fund. And that was my job in London, um, having walked away from a job with the Stone Roses manager. And we all knew the Stone Roses, mm. and we thought they were sort of like, yeah, quite an you know, interesting goth band, but didn't necessarily think they were gonna break through in a big way. Um, and I didn't even know he was managing them at the time, you know. Um, and I came to London and I, I, I hooked up with Ben again. And um, he, he, he'd um, sort of like started, well, he'd finished college. And I, I, we formed a band, uh, me and him, and the guitarist and drummer from Mambo Square, Ben played bass. And I was a singer. Um, we did some demos. Um, but when I finally got a gig um, as a talent scout, you know, just the demos were, uh, I just listened to them and I compare them with all the good demos and the people that were getting signed and Ben came down and went, this is great. We'll start the band in London. We'll go out and do gigs. And I said, we're not good enough. And he was a bit crestfallen and I, I didn't care. I'd got a talent scout job. I was sorted. Yeah. Um, but that, that was 
something I regret. Um, we should have kept the band going and we should have gone out and done loads of gigs and had a laugh and we shouldn't have taken seriously, it's at all seriously and we shouldn't have worried about getting signed. We should have just done it because being in a band is great and it's fun. And um, my, mate, my mates in Mambo Square probably had it right. They probably weren't quite good enough mm. and you know they did it they loved it what could be more fun than being a band going around playing I gigs can, I can and then just it's sack it off yeah yeah I, it's, I can tell you that it's amazing being in a band even if you're not <laughs> there yet it's like it's so so great we had like uh, two gigs that we were lucky enough to have like two gigs in this pandemic thing yeah and Mike it was so it was like amazing like for for one oh. minute I reached happiness honestly I you might, you might think I'm crazy and stuff, but I've been on stage. I was like, I, I reached happiness. It was like so, so great. And I don't know, having a good no. time with your mates is like, it's so good. It's so good. Music is a deeply, deeply spiritual thing. Mm -hmm. And when you're up there and you're singing, you're, you're absolutely connecting with the universe. When you're up on stage and you're singing and you're giving all your energy into that song, you're not thinking about the pandemic you're not thinking about who's going to win the, the American election. You're just no. thinking, you're, you're not even thinking about anything apart from, is my voice in tune? Or, you know, what do I look? Yeah, but, exactly. no, you're, yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. but you're in it. You're just the energy flowing. You've got the energy of the universe. And that's why, you know, particularly singers can be um, slightly full of themselves because you, you feel like a fucking god up there. It's, you know? it's, you're right, you're right, you're right. And I, I feel like that sometimes, to be honest. I yeah. really feel like that because I can see people, they kind of want that for me to sort of be like their God for like, I don't know. No, no, you're the hero. Of course you're yeah. a hero. You're up on yeah. stage singing in a band. <laughs> yeah, and they exactly, probably all exactly. want to be up on stage singing in a band, but they don't know how to or they're too nervous. or And you've somehow managed to deal with all that stuff when you're out there. And, yeah. you know, maybe they're watching the first gig of a band that are going to be, go on and be as big as Coldplay, you know, and they'll be able to tell their grandchildren about it. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. This regret, like, led you to a big thing. So how your I not thing started? I, I came down to London and I thought, well, I've met a few A&R people through being a, you know, being a manager. And, um, you know, it should be, it should be pretty straightforward. And, um, I'd met some A&R people and they were all, you know, they, they seemed pretty cool and, you know, thought, you know, get back in touch with them. Didn't get back in touch with me, though. OK, so I just started looking in the papers. There was a EMI had a graduate trainee scheme, applied for that, didn't get it. Um, there were jobs going at PRS, you know, I mean, for like no money. It was like five thousand pounds a year um, to Input, input data into computers. Uh, didn't get that. Um, went for a job at the Record and Tape Exchange. Thought, this is a cinch. Didn't get that. So I just Whoa. kept on going and kept on going. But I was just a bit, a bit gauche and a bit northern and my face didn't fit. And I kept on doing that and I did a succession of really rubbish jobs. You know, after the, working for the post office, as a, um, I got a job uh, I washed up at Arthur Anderson's um, accountants. They had a big canteen there. So I was a washer up there for a bit. Then I got a job at Unilever. And it actually was a job editing technical documents. So these were documents that detailed how Lux soap was made. And I had to go through them and make sure literally the T's were crossed, 
the I's were dots, were dotted, the commas were in the right place. So I really was crossing the T's and dotting the I's at yeah. Unilever. Got signed up with every temping agency. And off the back of that, I got a string of, you know, jobs that, that could pay the rent and, you know, enable me to go to gigs and um, go out and drink. Uh, and then one of my temping agencies called me back and said, uh, there's a job going at Universal. Um, they need a post boy. Sounds like the kind of thing you'd be interested in. I was just, oh, God, yeah, Universal, <laughs> fine. The movies, I can do movies, fine. <laughs> in there. And even though it was a job, it was a job, uh, actually, Universal Pictures in the UK, I discovered, uh, was one guy and his secretary. And that was it. But basically, within the building, and they used to have this massive building uh, on uh, Piccadilly, next to the Hard Rock Cafe, just by High Park Corner, 139 Piccadilly. It was actually a gift from Lord Nelson to his mistress, Emma Hamilton. So she'd been there originally. So a big grand house. In the old days, all the record companies and publishing companies used to be a big grand houses. And um, I, yeah, the gig there was basically sitting on the front desk, being the post boy, but I'd also sit there late at night. And the, we had a screening theater in the basement. And uh, so you'd get people coming in to see screenings and I'd stay there till like midnight to keep the doors open, lock the building up. And we used to get... David Bowie came in to see a screening wow. with Marie Halvin and Jerry, Jerry Hall, Jerry Hall. So two supermodels and David Bowie. I mean, <laughs> does like, and David asked me if I had a cigarette. I didn't. So I had to go next door and buy <laughs> cigarettes for him. Wow. So yeah, I, I, I think somewhere I still have a cigarette butt belonging to David Bowie. Um, and yeah, the Monty Python team would come in. Uh, oh. Dodi Fayed, who was a, a big well, a film producer at the time, he came in a few times. So that, that was interesting. But what was super interesting is that on the first floor of the building was a company called MCA Music. And MCA Music Publishing uh, was a music publishing company. And I had no, even having managed a band, I had no idea you could get a publishing deal for the songwriter in the band. And... That's, you know, basically every time a song gets played on the radio or a record got sold, then money was generated for the songwriter. And publishing companies collect that money and they pay it through to the songwriter and they take a piece of that. Um, and it was just like, oh my God. And they had a talent scout and they had A&R people. So it was just like, oh God, so this is like a record company, but I'm actually in the building. <laughs> so I did, I know I spent a year as a post boy and I was really cheeky because obviously every night I'd lock the building up. But before I locked it up, I'd be the only one in there. So I'd just go through all the A&R man's desks and notes and files and papers, listen to the demos and, you know, get excited when they were looking at a band I knew. And, you know, I'd get to talk to the A&R people about it. And um, they had a talent scout there. And I was just sort of like, oh, how you doing? Yeah, I really want to do your job. And he was just sort of like, <laughs> yeah, you better just disappear because he was <laughs> no, he wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't that bad. He wasn't. No, no and, and he's a really good guy, and he was brilliant at encouraging me. Yeah. But I think there was definitely an element of <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Do a meeting, and so he wasn't. I don't think he was delighted about it. But long story short, and I got I I so basically I laminated myself a little card with Mike Smith, Talent Scout, MCA Music. And I'd go out around London at night and suddenly 
you got a card like that, I could get into gigs for free. Like if there were like, and I just say, like, hi, I'm an A&R guy for MCA Music. You could get, you rang up beforehand, spoke to the promoter at the Bulling Gate or the Falcon or the Mean Fiddler, and you could get a pass. In those days, they used to give you like, like, uh, like a membership pass for clubs that A&R people could get. So like Bingwalls had one, the Mean Fiddler up in Harston had one. Um, and you could just get in whenever you wanted to see bands. I mean, wow. can you imagine? That's that's, that's, that's like yeah. It's like gold, it, isn't it? It's like a Nando's black car. <laughs> yeah. It really was. For a music fan, it was, it was the same thing. One of my favourite bands is Blondie. So, and I loved the Primitives who'd, who'd come through and they were a band I'd, I'd watched a lot and really loved. So the Darling Buds came through and the Primitives had had a hit and I just thought, oh, well, the Darling Buds, they, they could have a hit because they've got some catchy tunes. And uh, the singers, Andrea, she's quite striking. And guitarist, Harley, he looks really cool in a kind of James Deaney sort of way. And they're making this great kind of buzzsaw um, pop. So I um, got a little carried away, rang up the manager and said, I love your band, tell us a bit more about them. And basically started, you know, getting involved and he was excited, thinking, oh, great, I've got a publishing company interested in me. <laughs> yes. And um, in the end, it, it, the A&R upstairs heard about the Darling Bugs, and they rang the manager, and he said, yeah, yeah, I'm talking to your talent scout, Mike Smith. And they went, oh, Mike works in the post room. <laughs> and he went, oh. So I, I got in so much trouble. And um, luckily, they didn't fire me. And... Um, but it was quite a, a, a weird moment when the manager came in and saw me on the front desk and there was a bit of a kind of like, mm, mm, uh -oh. and then he went up to see, see the A&R people. Anyway, then the A&R guys that were there, they had a massive hit record with Fairground Attraction, song called Perfect, number one, and got so excited, they quit their jobs and started their own publishing company. Wow. Yep, and so new A&R people had to be found. Um, when they left, the talent scout also left. So the two A&R guys that came in, they were looking for a talent scout. And I got everybody I knew to speak to them and say, hire me. So like all the assistants and secretaries in the building. Any, there was a couple of A&R scouts that I knew from going out to gigs. So I got them to talk to them. Yeah. And they hired me as a scout. So that, and it's a very long 45 minute introduction is how I got into the music business properly. That's it, but it's, it's a bit like sliding doors, isn't it? Because you had loads of other ways that you could have gone, yeah. but the fact you went this way has led you to this journey. So it takes all of those things that piece together, doesn't it? And it's no, 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 the, the, the universe came in because I, I sort of like look back, I've got, I've got a lever arch folder like that thick. Yeah. Full yeah. of all the job applications I went for. And I was applying for jobs at art galleries, theatres, music venues, anything to do with music, um, advertising agencies. I came close to working at an advertising agency. So, and I'm sure I would have embraced it and thrown myself in. Hey, that's a sexy job. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I can still be involved in music. They have music and adverts. Uh, yeah. you know. But mercifully, I, um, I got my job as a talent scout after a year on the front desk. So when I was no longer on the front desk, I, I called my mate Ben up and said, look, I, I just got this job as a talent scout. My old job's available. So he went, oh, that'd be brilliant. We'll be working together. That's fantastic. He gets in and gets, gets my old job as a postboy. 
Now the following week, we meet up with a girl we know, we'd known from Manchester. And she'd been quite a low-key, quiet girl, Laura Ashley dresses, mm-hmm. like longish hair. Um, we hadn't seen her for about a year. And we bump into her and go, oh my God, it's Emma. And she was like, short, dark, bobbed hair, black bodycon mini dress, you know, black tights, yeah. ankle boots, big red lipstick. And it's just like, wow, you've changed. <laughs> um, Goodness. And it's just like, what, what are you up to? And she said, oh, I'm, I'm uh, an A&R secretary at WEA Records. Um, and Ben was going, oh, I, I, I'm a Ben had sort of like seen what I was doing. And he goes, I'd, I'd like to do A&R. And she said, well, funny enough, my boss is looking for a talent scout. So after being on the desk, uh, MCA, doing my old job for two weeks, he met the head of A&R at WAA Records and got the job. Wow. Two weeks. That's two funny. weeks he'd been down. But he was from southeast London. He looked cool, had a flat top, great denims, 501s, you know, robot shoes, just great. And um, yeah, his face, beautifully fitted. Did you feel jealous? Um, was your best friend, but did you feel jealous? Um, you know what? I, I, I wasn't because I was a little bit jealous that he was in records and I was in publishing and records was the dream gig. And, uh, and he was probably earning more money and I think he had a company car. So, but <laughs> at the end of the day, my best mate were talent scouts together. And the fact that he was in records and I was in publishing meant that we could, you know, really swap information. And, and we, so we just became, you know, brothers in arms going out. And we, you know, we were, we ended up sharing flats together. Um, we're going out and finding bands together. And Ben, you know, throughout my life has turned me on to music, books, cinema. Um, never introduced me to any girls though. Which is, oh. But that was the only thing he Bad let wing me down man. on. Yeah, not a great wingman. Because <laughs> uh, he was way too handsome. So, um, oh. It was the late 80s. By now the Stone Roses were huge. huge. And... Um, but interestingly, because I was the talent scout, I'd go out and bring everything in. So I was going down all the record shops in, in London and finding sort of like all the sort of like house imports that were coming in, all the stuff from Chicago and New York and Detroit. Um, you know, going out, I was getting to see a lot of hip hop at the time. I remember seeing Jungle Brothers at the, the WAG Club and seeing a lot of acid house as it started to come in. Oh. And it was just, to be honest, it was a very, you know, there was indie stuff that was coming through that was sort of making a go of it, but there wasn't much. You know, you, the best you could hope for is that you could find a band, you know, like the Smiths mm. or R.E.M. or the Jesus and Mary chain. You know, to be honest, most of the acts I saw in my early years as a talent scout were like Scottish and Irish blue-eyed soul bands that sort of like guys that wanted to be George Michael or bands from Scotland and Ireland that wanted to be you too, you know, and that was, that was all well and good, but I was much more excited about sort of like the bands on the creation label or the, the rough trade label. But yeah. I also really liked um, all of the electronic music that I was going out and finding. So it was a, it was a brilliant place to learn stuff. And we, you know, I would, and obviously I walk into a, you know, a very hip dance shop in the West End and they just took one look at me. I was probably, you know, crap jeans, crap indie t-shirt, crap hair, and just went, you walked into the wrong shop, mate. And then I'd go up and said, have you got Sugar Bear? Don't scandalize mine. And um, Young MC Know How, 
and I'm reaching. Uh, and they were just like, ah, okay. And then I got to know them. And it just, I mean, admittedly, I'd been tipped off a little bit before. I said, like, can you go and get these records, Mike? But it was just my passport into another. And it's that thing again, it's just sort of like, how do I get in with this really cool crowd over here? Um, it's being bold, isn't it? You know, you've got to go is. in with being bold. Yeah, it's it really isn't a gig for somebody who's shy mm -hmm. or and and to be honest, I always thought of myself as as quite reserved and shy. And you realise that confidence and charm uh, is something you can figure out, you know. And that's that's a big, you know, if you love music and you're shy and you just think, oh, what can I do about it? It's just like just throw yourself in it is real throwing yourself in at the deep end because you know so many you know swans in the music business were very much ugly ducklings like myself and you know we you just go in and you work really hard and you figure it out and you figure out these people that you think are oh so cool are actually not necessarily so cool you know they're yeah. just and they're you know a lot of them are as scared as you are but you don't realize it because they've got so many great clothes on. Yeah, it's all a front. All a front. Yeah. Even even more so now when you can build your own digital armor. Oh my and, gosh! Um, you know, so you can completely hide behind that. And um, I think it was actually better for us that we had to. And that was it. You know, if you couldn't be shy, you know, it was just like literally. I think the instruction I got in talent scouting was: there's your desk, there's your phone, get on with it. Yeah. And I'd open time out, just like I had done in Bristol, opening up the venue, go through. And they used to put in time out those days, every act that was playing in London that night. So hundreds of acts would all be listed and they'd all have a description. And if something sounded interesting or it was something the time out really liked, then you'd chase it up. And through that, I got to know journalists at time out. And then I, you know, the NME got to know journalists at the NME, um, Melody Maker Sounds. You start, you know, you, who's doing the evening session? You get to know them, you get to know DJs, then you get to know promoters at venues, then you get to know people running rehearsal rooms, and you just build this fabulous network. Yeah. And talent scouts are like, like market traders, they're like in the city, but what you trade are you know bands and artists and it's vibes i mean mm. it sounds it's really it sounds really crass to say that now but everyone, oh god it's amazing vibe yeah. and people would literally have suitcases in the back of their car filled with demo cassettes and you'd right drive up to the north of england and you'd be you know you put your you put your uh your cassette in listen to it do we like it do we not if you liked it you'd put it you know in your bag on the back if you didn't like it in the floor well and it's just like you were like that and, and that's the other thing that seems amazing as talent scouts we would think nothing of driving from london to newcastle and driving back at the same mm. night and um quite a few talent scouts came across that way but it was you know we you know people would you know i i didn't have a company car i mean we mca was not a big music publishing company so i didn't have a company car didn't have you know anything so it was I'd be kipping on my mates' floors in hotels. I'd always be getting a lift with them, you know. Was there any, like, any pressure? Like, were you kind of racing against other talent scouts sometimes? If an artist had a lot of eyes oh, on massively. them? Massively. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's always, it's, and that pressure's never let up. <laughs> and you've got a much bigger pressure in the back of your mind that mm -hmm. I am doing the job of my dreams. 
I know absolutely nothing about what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't even know if the music I like is ever going to be successful. I can't, I can't, I can't possibly lose this job. So every A&R man knows fear and paranoia at a huge level because unlike pretty much any other job in the music business, it is obvious when an A&R man or a talent scout is doing well, mm. their act has a hit on the charts and goes on to be successful or their yeah. act doesn't It's really simple. You know, whereas the marketing person could go, that was a brilliant marketing campaign, but what could I do? Mike signed this rubbish act. You really are the most in the firing line. And my, one of my later bosses compared us to fighter pilots in the battle of Britain, yeah. you know, they'd just be, we'd all be going up there. Yeah. And it really feels like that now I'm in my mid fifties. And I feel like a fighter pilot in 1945. You know, you're still, you're still just about holding on there. You've got a, you've got a, a fighter plane with all the kills you've had on the years on the side of the plane, but you're still going off. And it's still as exciting as it was on your first day, but you never know whether you're going to get shot down or not. But I wanted to ask you, like, because your first, so your first sign, like the big sign, it was blur. First ever signing. My bosses were quite good. They stopped me from signing a couple of things. Um, the first offer I ever got out was on a band called Ride, who was signed to Creation Records. Yeah. And through that, I got to know all the creation people. And then I was in record and tape exchange. And um, up on the wall was a poster in Camden Town for um, a new food records band uh, called Blur. And I went, oh, well, that should be good. I'll check that out. It was the Bull and Gate. Because um, I really like Jesus Jones. And I really liked... Um, Voice of the Beehive, who they managed, and Diesel Park West, who were another band on Food Records. Food Records seemed like a great place. And as a, as a talent scout, you often follow labels. And it felt like Food, you know, Jesus Jones were a band who were having a big hit and they were, were making music that I like. Mm. And that's always been the way I've done A&R. Can I hear it on the radio? Do I like it? But I think though, if, if, if I can hear something on the radio and I actually like it, then the chances are it's, it's going to do all right. So I went along to see Blur that Friday and it was in the back room of the Bull and Gate, maybe about 40 or 50 people in there. Totally chaotic. They were wearing the clothes of the day. So they were all wearing baggy t-shirts, baggy jeans. Um, they... They all had different variations of bowl haircuts that was also very fashionable at the time. And, I, and the singer was just like insane. He was like climbing along the, the ceiling pipes and jumping on the PA at the side of the stage and throwing us and he'd run behind the kit and be sick and he'd run out again. And it was as wonky as anything. And I just couldn't, you know, they're just like, this is, and I could see Andy Ross, their A&R guy from food, standing almost side of the stage going, yeah, do this, do that. And I was just, I, I, hang on, this, this seems a little bit contrived. Mm. So um, I went away. And then the following week, they were doing a four-week residency. I went back the following week to see them again. Because obviously something had stuck with me. Because they were exciting, really exciting. Yeah. And I went back, and that second time I went back, I just went, wow. I remembered every single song from the week before. The, the melodic power of those songs and those guitar parts were just amazing. And the bass had an, you know, the bass had its own kind of like upfront running away with itself. 
sort of like, you know, approach. And I suddenly went, God, these, these guys are really, really good. And then I saw them again at the venue in New Cross. Um, I think, yeah, I, I can't remember. They might have been opening for Pulp or something like that. Yeah. And no, and they were really good. And I remember hearing She Is So High and just going, oh my God, they could be the Stone Roses. They could be as big as the Stone Roses. And that's and the Stone Roses were on the radio. And I heard She Is So High and I thought, well, that could be on the radio because it sounds a bit like the Stone Roses. And there was no getting away from what they were like. Um, they were, you know, bunch of really good looking lads mm. and then I, I got to know them and Damon was a bit suspicious but he was just like super focused and it just turned out that all of the we just we just were in love with the same cinema the same books the same music um, and I got to know Damon he was and he knew you were supportive he was Incredible, you know, he was your friend, you know, he'd totally, he'd be he'd quite intimidating and intense, but you know, he was so full of confidence and belief. I'd never met anyone like that before who mm. so know, knew his destiny. And um, the other guys were probably a little bit more laid back, but they were all great fun. I mean, Graham was living in a squat in Camberwell with his girlfriend. Alex was living in, you know, a dreadful squat in, um, in New Cross, opposite the venue, just next to the town hall. Dave was living in a, a bedsit in Greenwich. And it was a bit like the Beatles, because it was like this terrace street. And he had a bed, just what, literally one room yeah. in the front of this terrace. And Damon lived about five doors down <laughs> on the same street in Greenwich. Oh. And I just, I just really, it's like, God, these guys are great. And they know about art, and they know about books, and they know about punk rock, and they know about Scott Walker. And then suddenly it was just a meeting of minds, and I was just beyond myself at meeting, you know, four of the coolest people I'd ever met in my life that were great fun, good looking, and were all, so I was, they were my mates, I was in the tour bus, I was traveling around with them, and we were all at the time as well so we bonded in that way yeah and um and I managed to persuade my boss to overlook his thought that Damon maybe didn't have the greatest voice in the world and um he did acknowledge yeah they've got some good tunes we put an offer out and then everybody else got wise and suddenly I was competing with four or five other companies and you know one mm -hmm. you know one of the we'd offered um we'd offered a five-figure sum and another company had offered a six-figure sum that was nearly twice as much as our offer. And I was just, I, I would honestly go home every night and pray to God to sign the band because I knew if I could sign Blur, I'd have a career in the music business. And they were the best band I'd ever seen. And this was, this was it. This was my one shot. Mm. And um, incredibly, much to the annoyance of their manager, they signed with me and I'd never signed anything before. They just went, oh, we like Mike and he likes us and there's no nonsense about it. Whoa. That doesn't happen <laughs> ever. <It's> so <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's very yeah. rare that somebody will take a significant. But you kind of build that because you hang out with them, you have the same yeah. things, you talk to them. You're like... We're roughly the same age. So yeah, yeah it, it, there was just a meeting of minds and I, I really felt like I was on the team.
they've all been lifelong friends and we've, we've been through phenomenal things to get together. And Alex, the bass player, um, managed to do what my mate Ben didn't do. And he introduced me to my wife. So, you know, not only have I got them to be thankful for, for a career in the music industry, I've also got them to be thankful for, for a wife and two kids. So, so you're connected, you're connected for life with those guys. Yeah, totally. I mean, Alex is the, he's the godfather <laughs> of uh, Stevie, my older daughter. But I wanted to ask, because you're very good, like uh, friends with them, like very close to them. Like, how did you leave that big rivalry that kind of still lives today with the, the Blow Oasis thing? Well, to be honest, I mean, I, I, I left MCA in um, 1990, end of 91. And by now, Blur were doing well. Their first album, you know, I, I hadn't, hadn't exploded, but it had done well. But it probably been a bit overshadowed by Primal Scream. And um, Scream of Delica was very much the record of, of sort of like 1991, um, as opposed to Leisure, uh, the first Blur album. But, you know, Blur were doing well. They were on the charts in America. They were about to embark on a massive tour. They were recording demos in the new studio. Uh, in, uh, in Matrix, uh, demos for the new album. But it was a great opportunity. I got a job at EMI, and that job was going to be working with some of my favorite bands, like The House of Love, Ride, 5.30, Primal Scream, My Bloody Valentine. So for me, it was the roster from heaven. I was so excited. So there was no, no, no question about it. And the band were really good about it. And sort of like, in fact, Graham said to me, oh, that's fantastic. We can be mates now. And it's just, it, it changed the relationship, but I was spending exactly the same amount of time with them, you know, even though I wasn't working with them. Manchester in the city. And that was a conference a bit like The Great Escape, but in Manchester, which Tony Wilson had set up. Set up. So every venue in Manchester was having a gig on and every pub in Manchester had a gig on. And I was in a, a bar called the Canal Cafe Bar on Whitworth Street, the same street as the Hacienda. Um, the back onto the canal and it was a creation records night in 1993 and I was there with a with a mate of mine from school and he'd come along to hang out and I said oh let's let's go and see this I'm hearing good things about the first act that are on Oasis so we went in to see them and I, I it was it was yeah a, a, a massive moment for me because I see the band um, and Liam was just undeniable. He was a fabulous looking guy, but at the same time, quite hard. So you've mm -hmm. got that kind of like Terence Stamp kind of like thing where somebody is incredibly good looking, but also a real bloke. Sean Connery, that kind of thing. Yeah, or, yeah. You know, any James Bond, pretty much. Maybe not George <laughs> Lazenby, but you know that that kind of thing. And Liam, Liam just had it in spades. He was totally cool. Had this fantastic voice that sounded like John Lennon, um, and he was singing really good songs. And the guitarist was was good. Noel, um, I remember him thinking, he's like, oh, look, look, you know. Had the hair that was a bit mop top, a bit like, and a jumper, a bit like Graham. Um, and then there were these other three that I wasn't so sure about, but <laughs> the songs were really good. And the singer was amazing. And the guitarist was good. So I went, ah, that was good. And then two weeks later, I went up to see them and they were supporting Liz Fair. I don't know if you know Liz Fair, but she was 
you know, probably a big inspiration for, you know, a lot of female singer-songwriters and riot girls who came after that. Mm -hmm. She was a female singer-songwriter, but had a very strong, sassy, feminist agenda that was just fucking brilliant. And yeah. uh, so she was headlining and they were supporting. And I saw them again and it was just like exactly the same as with Blur. It's just like every song of these, every song that they are playing sounds like it should be on the radio. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, these sound like proper hit records. And I got a tape off the manager. In fact, <gasps> oh. have I still got it here? Oh. I, should, I should have rehearsed this earlier. This in case... <laughs> Yeah, no, that's cool. Oh. It must be. It's, it's got to be in the top. It's got to be in the top. Surely, top. surely. Um, oh, God. Yeah, all the demos of my old bands are in there. But yeah, <laughs> there we go. Brilliant. But that's the Oasis demo. Wow. Um, right there. So there you go. Wow. That's the Whoa. one I got. It's not. That's actually. There were ones that went out that just had their, um, their logo on. But Ignition yeah. is the Ignition's the name of the management company, and um, and the first one I got had four tracks on it, and I think it had. It certainly had Rock and Roll Star on it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it had Shaker Maker mm. and Super so- and Columbia on it, and it had uh, Live Forever. Oh, wow. And I just remember hearing Live Forever, and I loved all the rock and roll tracks, but when I heard Live Forever, it was just like, ooh, this is, this is really, really gonna, gonna work. Yeah. So the manager told him how much I loved the band, and he said, oh, I said, can I meet them? He said, well, they're doing a gig in Amsterdam. So I thought, great, fantastic. So I was all set to, to go over to Amsterdam. And then they were sailing out to Amsterdam on the ferry, and they, they got... Um, a little tipsy on the ferry and ended up um, being thrown in the, uh, in, in the, I don't know what they call them on boats, but basically the, uh, the seller of the boat and uh, sent straight back to England. So didn't play the gig in Amsterdam. I missed that. Um, but, I, but I went up to Manchester and I met Noel and we talked about doing a deal. And again, serious guy, very just like total vision, no no encounter with self-doubt whatsoever. He, he believed in it 150%. And it was just like, okay. <laughs> and so um, I remember going in and it was the first time I'd like sit, sat down with um, the A&R team. And, you know, deals in those days tended to be five-figure deals. And I said, you know, we've got to make, we've got to do, you know, a proper six-figure deal for this band. And everybody was, it was like a massive, are you sure? And it was just like, yeah. Believe me, this is the one. Are you sure? Yeah, this, I, I can't believe going back there was ever a question. So we got the offer out and it ended up being between us and Sony Music. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, with them being signed to Sony Records, it it was an incentive for them to go to Sony uh, Music. And I remember I'd, I'd bust my back and I was lying on the floor of my flat on Old oh. Compton Street in Soho. And I was on the floor uh, with, and I was on the phone to Marcus, who managed the band. And he was like, "Yeah, sorry, mate, we got, got, got a bit of bad news." And it was just sort of like, "Fuck." fuck. So, so uh, that's my how I nearly signed Oasis story. And uh, um, luckily, I did get to sign Liam Gallagher many, many, many years later. But it, um, so that made up for it. But every cloud. 
And and to be honest, at the start, there wasn't any rivalry between Blur and Oasis. We all used to go to the clubs. With that, the, when Blur won four Brit Awards at the end of, at the beginning of 1995, they said, that, you know, this is for all the bands out there. And I think they actually name-checked Oasis. It's sort of like, this is great. It's about the future. It's about us. It's about Oasis. And um, it just, yeah, it just got whipped up. I think as much by the media as um as the bands themselves and uh you know it, it's it's not hard to wind up you know hot-headed young men um who uh who like a drink mm-hmm. so um so yeah it did get a bit a bit a bit lively after that the south versus the north or i i think fun? yeah definitely that that went into it i think one of the things that really annoyed me was that it was pitched as a working class uh, versus middle class, and there was this whole kind of like public schoolboy um, thing about Blur, which couldn't be further from the truth. All four members of Blur had gone to comprehensives. Um, they'd all come from working. The only one who was middle class was Alex. The other three came from working class backgrounds. Um, born in Germany, his dad was in the army. Dave, I think, was from Colchester, which is. Uh, where they where they they knew each other from, um, and Damon's parents were school teachers. Well, actually, no, we, we're art, we're uh, we're college teachers. So you know, Damon has a similar kind of background to Alex Turner. You know, he's he's an educated working class guy, and you know, so I was always very upset that they they were perceived in that way. But obviously, you know, that people you know love to fund very big stereotypes. So, and like, obviously, Mike, you've been in the industry over 30 years, which is amazing in itself. So you have seen it change and develop through the times, which is incredible. Oh God, so, yeah. <laughs> so how do you kind of like, how does A&R work now? Because obviously like you've got social media, so you can kind of like grasp an image of a band before you've even met them. So how does that kind of work in the new age with all the kind of visual stuff that we get now? Well, I think the the amazing thing is is that you've got so many analytics mm. you hear the music so the first thing you do when you get a piece of music is find out whether anything's going on yeah. you know and check out you know if they're on facebook how many likes have they got and they should be on facebook same with instagram yeah. um how many follows have you got what are you doing on youtube what are your numbers like there you know, you on TikTok, what's going on with that? So immediately you're building up a profile. If you put anything out on Spotify or Apple, what are the numbers of streams? Yeah. Have you been picked for any playlists? You know, it's no surprise that Lewis Capaldi, he exploded because he was number one on New Music Friday with his first independently released single. Yeah. You know, and that blew up, especially in America. Um, so there's so much that, that is fed through you definitely, you know, back in the day, I was just getting cassettes through the post. Mm-hmm. And I did try to sign things. And I think I actually did sign some things that came through the post. Um, so I always listened to the cassettes that came in. But it was a, it, that wasn't an easy way to get a deal. Yeah. Um, usually, and, and it's, it's again the same, you know, it's the old tricks in the book. People will try and email me. It's not that hard trying to work out what my email address is. I'm on Instagram and Facebook, so they'll DM me or they'll um, friend me or ask me to follow me. 
And if I don't respond, they'll unfollow me and then follow me again. <laughs> oh, no. It's like all the old tricks. <laughs> um, and, you know, if they're particularly, if they're especially persistent, you know, I'll probably listen to it. Um, but still feel that the fundamentals are the same. You know, when any of, you know, our A&R people are, oh, this is interesting. It's just like, great, let's have a listen. And I'm, you know, number one, great. This, this, this sounds good. I like it and I can imagine it on the radio. Same old thing. Um, what do they look like? Um, oh, you know, that's not quite what I expected. Nobody's, <laughs> yeah. he's got a great personality. And then, and, then, yeah. and then you meet them and sometimes they have a remarkable personality. And I think Lewis Capaldi would be the first to admit he is not Paolo Mattini, yeah. but he has a personality every bit as charming and as engaging as Paolo Mattini. That's right. You know, but but I am of a, I must admit, I do like, you know, I like a band to look like pop stars still. And I've always, I, I, I think that's important. It's good to have a band you can stick on the wall and go, I want to be that person. They look amazing and they're cool and the girls love them, the boys love them. And I'm, I'm, I'm a sucker like that. So like when bands like, you know, the Strokes or the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs or the White Stripes mm -hmm. came along, it's just like, ah, yeah, that, that, that's, you know, you know, that, that's what I, yeah, you want to, you want, I want to be in that band. At the end of the day, we had analytics when I started in the music business. You know, you had an analytic as, is this person good looking? Is this person charismatic? You have to meet them and know, is this person going to want to keep doing this when everything is going wrong? Because yeah. there will be times when everything is going wrong. Have they got that, you know, attitude of there is no plan B? It is this, this is what we've got to do. And Chris Martin has it. You know, you can spot it a mile off. Mm. Dave, Steph London, Skepta, Stormzy, Huss, all have it. You know, and it's, it's the vital thing. Alex Turner had it in spades. Yeah. You know, it's so, so important. You know, take that above talent because there's plenty of untalented people in the charts. But if they've got sufficient determination, they'll mm. figure out how to get themselves with the best writers and producers. They'll figure out how to get the best vocal coaches, the best stylists. And guess what? You've suddenly got a hit. You know, it's all about signing a person that, that, that ticks all of those boxes. And if there's a box that's left unticked, then one of the other boxes better have two or three ticks in it. Yeah, make up. You know, you're not very charismatic. You're shy and you're nervous but you write the greatest songs in the world. Yeah. You know, Elliot Smith, Nick Drake, you know, fuck it, we're still signing. Yeah. You know, a tough one to get round is the terrible manager. You know, that, that's, <laughs> yes. that can often, mm. you, you've got to go into that with your eyes open because a dreadful manager will upset everybody, make everybody hate their artist. Mm. And sometimes they don't get fired. Usually they do. Yeah. But you're going in, there's a big, I would say 50-50 chance of that manager getting fired and a good manager stepping in. And I've, I've been burned many times thinking, we'll be all right, we can probably fire the manager. After, you can't tell an artist to fire a manager. Yeah. But you just sit there and go, surely to God, he appreciated that tonight was a bit rubbish when there was no tour manager. You know, surely. No. But did you have like, did you have like, like loads of like arguments with managers? Did you have any like, I don't know, fights or whatever with some managers? You know, the lovely thing about music publishing 
is that you just turn up usually with the good news. So, <laughs> yeah. hey guys, let's have a look at the record. Sounds great. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to upset anybody. You're not the one that's got to go in there very often and say, that's not a single. Mm. In fact, you know, you just sit there and go, I don't need to do that because there's a guy from the record company standing next to me and I'm going to let him do that because somebody's got to be the nice guy. Yeah. And you go in and say, oh, I've just got you this great sync on this car advert or I've just got you in this film or I've got this, 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 this film company love you and you're going to be able to write the score for them or we're talking about developing this musical theatre piece or we've got your song on a big mouth Billy Bass Christmas <laughs> present. So all the ways that music publishing works, you know, look at this beautiful portfolio of your songs that we've just created. It's all great. And then in 2005, I went to work at a record company mm. and I understand it, I, I understood everything after that, because that's when you understand why artists have arguments with record labels. And as a publisher, I'd seen many artists have many arguments why haven't we got any money for yeah. videos? Why haven't we got any money for tour support? Why did you make us go with that single? Why is our video rubbish? Mm. And yeah, I'd, I'd go through that many times. Um, but I think because I'd been a publisher, which is a very, you very much side with the writer, often with the writer against the record label, I was always very um, artist orientated and I mean, certainly with Blur, I, I, you know, you could, you could say you went native and you were almost like you, you were just totally there with the band and whatever they wanted. And that happens a lot with management. Yeah. You know, sometimes you, can, you, you don't become completely objective. But going into record companies, you have a job to do. And again, you've got that same. I had as much paranoia when I went in as managing director of Columbia Records as I had when I was a talent scout. My first signing, well, I mean, it, my first signing was one I spent quite a lot of money signing and quite a lot of money making the record and it didn't work. It didn't work at all. And I remember my boss, the chairman of the company coming down and going, Mike, it's all right. You've spent all this money. It's not going to work. It's all right. Just don't do it again. <laughs> Oh. And, no and it, it's, I think you're allowed to make mistakes, just yeah. try not to repeat them. <laughs> yeah. and, um, so ask, I wanted to ask about that because like, it's, it's exactly like, like you have like, for example, like Rick Rubin and stuff and he did like yeah. loads of great songs. They're like, also like loads of songs that they didn't make it. So what do you think this happened? What do you think, what do you, what do you think is the, is that makes the difference? It's like something chemical in the air, but well, I don't know. And it very much is. It's the energy that's out there in the air. We're all made of energy. But that energy happens when a song is written. And it happens when an artist records the song. Now, sometimes the artist is the songwriter. Sometimes the artist co-writes the song with that songwriter. So something really magical happens there. And I think that's why certainly songs in which the artist has a bit more authority tend to be slightly more interesting. And that's not to, you know, Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra, Liam Gallagher for many years. You know, they, they were brilliant interpreters of songs. Yeah. Roger Daltrey, you know, brilliant, brilliant interpreters of other people's songs. Um, but I think what can happen sometimes is that a song only has value 
when it's been recorded and it's let loose into the air. Um, and in the old days, it was different because you'd, you'd write a song, put it on sheet music, sell the sheet music, and you'd play it at the piano. And that's how you'd have a hit. Um, but obviously in this day and age, you write a song, it needs to be recorded by an artist. And either that art, if that artist fails, or if, you, if it's your own song and your band doesn't succeed for whatever reason, um, then the song dies with it. Mm. But there are, you know, there's, there's countless, particularly songwriters I've worked with over the years, um, that I felt their songs were brilliant. And they, they may have failed uh, at artists, as artists for, you know, a number of reasons, but the songwriting was good. And a lot of them I've subsequently gone on and, and worked with and developed and, and built as songwriters. It's just like, then you, you start, you've got an opportunity to start afresh. You know, the 1975, I think we're on their fourth name by the time. And I checked them out previous to them becoming the 1975. And then they were the 1975 and I heard their first song on the radio and I pulled the car out because it was so good. Yeah. And I sort of, I think it was, I think Sex was the first one that got played on the radio. I think, you know, before, before Chocolate. And I stopped the car and it's this band 1975. And I was just like ringing all the A&R people going, who's this band? You know, 1975. And then, and then I realized who it was and went, and it's like, I spoke to my A&R guy and he went, yeah, you remember that band we went up to see in uh, just at, in, in Altrincham, just outside of Manchester. We went into that little room at the back of the house and we saw them rehearse and yeah, they, they, we loved, we'd loved that video, but it just didn't quite work in the room. And I was going, Oh, yeah, it's them. <laughs> oh, no. no. Damn. <laughs> that really was, in terms of recent years, I think it was, was it 20? I think we might have gone to see him in 2010 or 11. We, we first oh, wow. saw the 1975. Yeah. And, you know, I, 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 I don't regret many things, you know, it's not, I, you know, if I don't sign somebody who goes on to be famous, well, so what, you know, it, it, it happens, you know, mm. there's plenty of other, obviously there's a lot of other music publishers and A&R men that have got to feed their families. Um, but I just, one, I loved the manager and two, I loved the music that they made and three, I just genuinely was blown away by what they became. And it was as raw as anything, probably on that first record. But I listened to that first record again and again and just thought, wow, you are a lyricist of phenomenal ability. And George, you know, and I remember thinking George at the time was just a breathtaking drummer. And it was obvious that he had an influence on the production shop. So, yeah. But, um, but that's what I mean. I, th I think that was either the third or the fourth attempt. And... As soon as you change your name, you bury the past and you're, you're, you're a brand new band. You know, so I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. Obviously, a lot of artists are going, but what about the following we have now? And it's sort of like, well, yeah, talk to me about that following. How, how, how many, you know, hundreds of thousands of streams or followers have you got? And if it's, you know, if, if you're there in the thousands, but not the, you know, the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, change your name. Start we again. Have, actually, we have like millions, like nine million streams. So, well, you don't have to. Free ticket. So basically, what you're saying is just like, just keep it going, man. Just like uh, there is not, 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 no thing, like, such thing. Sorry, as a momentum, just need to do yours. Keep it doing. Keep well, no, no, no. 
it's like I said before, you've got all of these little boxes you need to tick. And yeah. I'd say momentum's up there, but it's only one box. There's another 10 below. And like I said, determination, I would say trumps, I mean, determination trumps everything above it. You know, it certainly trumps momentum. You just gotta, you know, if you're, I'm not saying it's gonna work, but yeah. if you're determined, you keep writing and you keep performing and you keep making music, you've got a better chance than you have if you stop. Yeah. <laughs> Very true, it's so true. That's it, it's just yeah. like, and it doesn't happen, you know, sometimes it happens overnight for people. Very rarely it does though. And often it can take, you know, idols, it took 10 years. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that, about this kind of bands. What do you think about the new political bands, like idols, contains the same? Ah, fantastic. Bands in general. Yeah, 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 you know, I mean, I grew up on political bands. You know, Sex Pistols and The Clash, you know, ferociously political. Same as Susie and the Banshees, you know, it's like everybody, for, for me, you know, music, is an art and it's so much more than just the the music it's the lyrics yeah and i think the difference between a good song and a truly great song is usually the lyric and the lyric needs to be sufficiently surprising that it goes whoa hang on what do they say there yeah it needs to connect with the listener and it needs to really grab them and drag them in and just like, I need, and they need, it needs to be something that feels classic. And, you know, even, even within um, Oasis, uh, particularly on the first record, it was such, you know, the first Oasis record, definitely, maybe, it's like Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. You know, it's just a uh, get out of here. We've got to get out of this place. I'm yeah. going to be a rock and roll star. Live forever. I mean, it was such a kind of agenda for the future. And, you know, so many of, of the Blur songs have a, definitely have a political edge to them, increasingly so as they went on. Um, but to me, you know, I, I grew up on Tom Robinson, on The Clash, on The Pistols, um, Velvet Underground, yeah. on The Stooges, Bowie and Roxy Music. Their lyrics all really meant a tremendous amount. And I would sit and pour over the lyrics as much as possible and you know a lyric doesn't it doesn't need to be super meaningful it can just be i mean a wop up a loop up a wop bamboo that's a great lyric yeah. isn't it? <laughs> you know and it's just it like, just listen to the way i mean obviously a genius vocalist can make even a substandard lyric sound great so anything that elvis presley sings fine with me anything <laughs> liam gallagher sings pretty much fine with me Anything Aretha Franklin sings, yeah, you ain't gonna go wrong. <laughs> but I did as an A&R person, particularly, I think post Arctic Monkeys, I felt, I mean, I, I must admit, with, with Alex Turner, I felt he was the best lyricist of his generation. And- The best by far, by far. Yeah, and yeah. I, I actually felt, and to be honest, I, I didn't sign a band for five years. Um, did MGMT and the Gossip, yeah. um, but I didn't sign a British band until Las Vegas, oh. um, and then the Vaccines, and it was and both Las Vegas and the Vaccines. I felt we were really, really Justin and James both really strong lyricists. Yeah, but I just felt after the Arctic Monkeys, it's just a like, well, good luck everybody, good luck, <laughs> yeah. good as them, it ain't gonna happen. 
And it was exactly the same as after Blur and Oasis and Pulp. It's just like lots of people pretended to be them, mm. but they were just, you know, it was ersatz rock and roll. It wasn't the real thing. Mm. And the same after, you know, the Stone Roses had it, Oasis and Blur had it, Jeff Buckley so had it. You know, I, I just for forever was just, Radiohead had it, but that was it. I just remember at a time, every everyone either wanted to be Radiohead or Jeff Buckley. And the thing is, yeah. your first record's always your record collection. It's where you go, I guess, on, on you've got to, but you've got to do well enough to get to record two. Yeah. And I just felt, and you know, it's it's the same now. You know, it's like obviously the success of of, of um, British Grime and, and Drill has created a wave of copyrights, uh, copy copyrights and copycats. Yes. and some of them are incredible, and some of them aren't. And you just that that's that's what I'm paid for to try and filter it out. And, um, you know, I, I think if you get the lyric right, that's, I mean, that's, that's what blew me away about Dave. You know, and we, at that point, we, when I, this is when I was at Warner Chapel. So when I'd returned to publishing, you know, I was lucky enough to work with a lady called Amber Davis there, who's in the A&R team. And she'd signed Skepta and Stormzy. Mm-hmm. And she played me Dave and I was just, blown away I just went god this guy is, is a serious poet mm. and we went down to meet him and he insisted on meeting in a recording studio with a piano and he so he could play for us and it's just like oh mm. he can play the piano and then he was actually he was working the desk and it's just like oh he can he can work a desk and it's just like god this guy's like 100 percent writer you know sure and Skepta was as well Skepta's a producer and a, you know but did that made it really special and I felt Humility, but enormous core strength. Yeah. Which I think all of those guys that have gone on and had success have. You know, they've they've all come from pretty tough backgrounds, and uh, you know, to to survive and come through and make a career in music from that background is not easy. You know, mm. and it's. Um, but again, yeah, it absolutely came back to, you know, the words. So. Did you see that? Did you see that the Dave moment ago last year with the kid at Glastonbury? You saw that, yeah. no? Yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah, and that's that's what I I think he's a. They're all unique, but I think Dave potentially has the farthest. Well, we'll see. You know, I mean, Storms is breathtaking. You know, yeah. as well. You know, but it's just it is, yeah. it's fascinating to see. You know, it's almost like you get frustrated. You know, they're defined within kind of like black British hip hop. And it's just like, he's just a God-given singer-songwriter. Yeah. And maybe he'll go on to be Bob Dylan. You know, that's, you know, it's, it's, that's where I see somebody like Dave. You know? What do you think like rap is number one now in the world? It's just a cycle? Or it's just like... No, no, no. I think, it, what do I think? I think it's fucking great yeah. and about time. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's so good because I would go to an international music conference and in the old days, we used to go to an international music conference. And I used to be, we used to be played um, frequently, a lot of slightly middle of the road, but very, usually very pop music that could get played on the local equivalents of commercial radio, capital radio in, in the countries, be it France or Germany or Spain or South America. Now I go to a music conference and all the international companies are there 
and they play music. And I'm seeing Rosalia, you know, from Spain. You know, they used to play, they used to, because the only way you could really make money from music publishing in Spain back in the 90s was getting your music into a soap opera. So they used to play a soap opera music when we were watching that. Germany, they used to play us what's called Schlager. Schlager's music from the, the south of Germany. And it's, it's quite easy listening, very commercial, but in, 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 quite, um, in, in quite a mainstream sort of way. Mm-hmm. And then now you have some of the most ferocious rap in the world coming out of Germany and, and really powerful, strong, politically driven oh. rap. Um, <laughs> you, and seem, getting... you seem very into it. You seem very into rap and stuff. You're very happy with that. Well, I do. Honestly, <laughs> rap is the best thing to have happened to music since punk rock because it just comes along and it's like, and, it's and the great thing yeah. about hip hop in the UK is that it happened without the approval of the music industry. No A&R people. I really, really, really have to think hard about which A&R people were signing UK rap artists. There's a few, there's a few. And certainly on the back of Dizzy Rascal and Wiley's early success at the beginning of the noughties, there were a few that were doing that. But Tiny Temper obviously had, had yeah. success on both sides of the Atlantic, but it wasn't particularly common. And certainly I think because a few people had maybe had, hadn't enjoyed the success they hoped for with British hip hop artists, they were just like, no one was interested. Mm. And, you know, I, I felt music was in a pretty dull state um, when, I, when, when I was working in, in the mid nor in the, in the teens, sort of like around 2015, 16. You know, I was working, I, mean, I was working with Slaves, with Jake Bug, and I was working with a lot of older artists like Squeeze or the Libertines or the Chemical Brothers that had sex success before. Um, and, I was just going, why isn't it any? And, and Jake Bug gave me confidence because he was writing songs within Archer, like Lightning Bolt and Two Fingers that were talking about his hometown. Yeah. The great thing was that you got, when UK rap started to come through in a big way, and that would have been around, what, 2014, 15? That's when it got really exciting because these were kids who didn't necessarily have a record deal. The manager was usually the same, was a guy from the same estate. The songwriter and producer was usually a guy from the same estate. And so there was no music business manager, no music business record company, no music business songwriter producer in there. So it was pure. It was so raw. It was absolutely music coming from the street. And guess what? Bit pissed off, bit unhappy about the way the world was. Yeah. Wanting to get to a much better place. So, you know, a fair amount of bling and booty in there as well. But it was just like, this is the most, everyone bangs on about authenticity and have been for years. It's just like, it don't get any more authentic than this. In the same way that we'd seen with punk rock in Britain in the the late seventies, it was the same now. And I, I honestly have not got as excited about a musical genre, because it was global as well. In the same way the punk was global, and it absolutely tore up the rule book. And hip hop and R&B makes up 50% of the charts in most parts of the world. So, you know, I remember when I, you know, we started, you know, we were signing quite a lot of 
British hip hop and R&B writers and artists when I was at Warner Chapel and friends of mine, you know, old friends of mine that had known me since uh, punk rock was sort of like going, do you really like this hip hop though? And he's just like, <laughs> come on, you know, I like the beat, you know, yeah. we have been friends together through the Beastie Boys, through Public Enemy, through the Wu-Tang Clan, you know, you know, you know, I love Eminem, you know, I love Dre. Yeah. You know, and they were just sort of like, yeah, but it's just a fad, isn't it? Because they, you know, it's, I think old school hip hop is very easy, you know, for somebody like somebody of my generation to get their head around. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's quite melodic and it's easy to flow through and there's, but you know, there's jump. whereas, yeah, 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 there's jump. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's very easy. Whereas you, yeah. You start listening to drill or grime or, you know, any of the music that's coming in from around the world, you've got to listen to it. You've got to listen yeah. to it again. And you got to listen to it again and again and again and again, and then it just goes, boom, it's in there. And suddenly you're, you're experiencing what all the hooks are, and what all yeah. the melodies and the rhymes are. And it's completely unlike the way you've been listening to music. It's unlike how you've been listening to hip hop music before. And this some is in people, UK. Yeah. Ah, no, I think it's the same everywhere. I think, yeah, I think there's, a, there's a genuine voice out there. And some people are still doing, you know, like Lord Carner, that's much more of a, an old school approach. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that, then you compare that to something like Dutch Valley, which is, you know, pretty ferocious, rasping, um, yeah. you know, or pretty much drill music. But he, you know, he's got ambitions. He wants to take it into other areas. Yeah. And you get into other areas just in the same way, you know, the Clash worked with Sandy Perlman, who was Blue Oyster Cult's producer on their second album. And so Stormzy and Dave start working with Fraser, Smith, Fraser T. Smith, who's a brilliant producer and songwriter, who back in the day was Craig David's guitarist and co-writer. Wow. So it's the same thing there. You know, you've got bigger ambitions, you work with bigger eyes. And a lot of the time you're hopefully bringing up your, your team with you. Yeah. And that's really important that all your mates do well. But um, yeah, I, I, I really, you know, and for me, I, the thing that's always turned me on the most is hearing something I haven't heard before, hearing new music. So for me now, it's, it's I mean, I, I'm super excited about the jazz scene in South London. You know, it's also kicking off the West Coast, you know, really excited about music coming out of places like Colombia, you know, the rap music that's coming out of Spain. You know, I think Rosalia was my favorite artist you know, year before last, you know, she's just incredible. Um, and it's just going out and ferreting these things. Africa is so rich in, in talent at the moment. You know, and it, what I love is that there's kids all over the world that have managed to, you know, they've got a rubbishy old, you know, computer. They've got fruity loops, which they've, you know, nicked from somewhere. <laughs> and guess what? They can start making music. This yeah. sounds like something you can hear on the radio. Yeah, it's mad. So, I'm getting, you know, I'm getting fired stuff from Taiwan or Singapore or Lagos or Botswana or, you know, just from all over the world. You know, I'll hear something and it's just like, oh, my God, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And when you think it's just like rock and roll happened because a white guy started singing the blues, you know, and it's a, that's the fascinating thing when you hear you know, somebody from the favela in, you know, Brazil or Colombia singing 
hip-hop in a way that you sort of recognize you just yeah. think ah this is interesting you know when you see a kid from Lagos like Rima you see him going at it taking on sort of like a western a northern hemisphere notion of what what rap and R&B is but it's presented by this super confident hip cool guy yeah it's just sort of like whoa that's amazing <laughs> you know so it's that yeah that that's that's what is so exciting and so inspiring yeah and I think that's the future isn't it it's just people being able to make stuff like that that's let's make your job so exciting like so it, exciting. it really does and I you know I, I recently got this job I'm now the uh I've got I've got a global brief for the first time in my life yeah. and I could not be more excited about that because I mean literally this morning eight o'clock I'm on the phone to um the head of our Japanese company and um, a music publisher based in um, Singapore that, that we're trying to do a joint venture with to sign some writers um, that are on the BTS record. Now that that's suddenly, you know, a whole world to be di diving into. Mm. But then, you know, later in the day, I'll be talking to the guy who runs our, our South African business about a couple of new things that I he I've heard on the Great Bantu South Africa. You know, we're trying to get into business in Brazil in a big way, you know, but at the same time, we're, we're working hard in the UK and in Stockholm and in America, obviously, you know, but that's what makes it, it makes it super exciting. And I think hopefully for the first time in my life, I might have mastered my own self-discipline so I don't overdo it because that's the biggest challenge. Yeah. You think you get more done by staying up all night, whereas in fact you don't. In fact, you get nothing done no. by staying up. <laughs> no. So just actually looking after myself and you know, being being more present in the moment and all that. That I that's that's my recipe. You, how do you how do you how do you relax? What what do you do to relax? You play tennis. You go to football. You, I don't know. What what, um, what books do you read? Uh, currently, I'm in a book club. The book club helps me to uh, read books I wouldn't otherwise listen to, read or read. Whoa, um, so at the moment I'm reading Now We Shall Be Entirely Free, which is a historical novel by Andrew Miller. And it's a brilliant, brilliant book. Um, and before that, actually, I'm looking at the books I've been reading. I read on the, the iPad. Yeah. Um, before <laughs> that century. was a, yeah, a brilliant um, from the late 19th century, a Russian book by Mikhail uh, Bulgakov called The Master and Margarita. Mm. Um, before that was a book called The Milkman by Anna Burns, which is set during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Um, before that is a book that's completely changed my life. It's called Autobiography of a Yogi, and it's by Paramahansa Yogananda. And he was an Indian yogi. He was born in the late 19th century. So he was born early enough to meet the great yogis of India, the great spiritual men of India up in the Himalayas and learn all their wisdom. And in the 1920s and 30s, he came to the West. He came to, to London and to New York and Los Angeles and brought uh, the spiritual um, religions of the East to to the West and it's basically a story of his life and what he learned wow. and 
I've always, you know, I think I used to, you know, be, as I said, quite hedonistic. And then at the end, when I, when my first child was born, I stopped drinking and smoking and taking drugs. And, but I, I didn't do enough of the, the kind of spirit. I, I got interested in a lot of spiritual stuff, but I never went deep into it. And what I discovered was this book was actually the favorite book of George Harrison and also Steve Jobs. Oh, and, they wow. give it to, and literally they'd give it to everybody that they work with. And it's just an outline for a way of life. Um, so meditating is a big part of it. Um, I'm vegan. Um, oh, that's so good. I'm, I'm very, you know, I'm very behind improving the environment. And, you know, it's a funny thing, the environment, because I'm, I'm not, I'm not actually worried about nature because nature will be fine. Um, the human race, I think, is, is definitely on course to be wiped out within the yeah. next 150 years. We're having a proper, you know, this is dinosaur time, guys. And if you want to go down dinosaur route, fine. You know, that's the wonderful thing. You can. <laughs> it's obviously tragic for you know, what my, my, my daughters and granddaughters and great-granddaughters will go through. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's the way of the world. You know, it's tragic when people vote certain way in elections. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you get, you get the president and the prime minister you deserve and you get, unfortunately, the planet you deserve. And if, yeah. if the human race, the majority of the human race are hell-bent on destroying it, well, so be it. You know, that's, that, that's the wonderful thing. We've got free will. But if I can do anything to help and make people realize there is a revolution coming that'll be as big as the industrial or the digital revolution, which will be the environmental revolution. And that, guess what? You can make as much money from re renewable energy as you can from carbon fossil fuels. Mm. It's just yeah. that the people that are making all the money from carbon fossil fuels need to swiftly change their business models. In the same way, the music business has completely changed its business model for the digital age. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm very proactive in getting us to be as environmentally conscious as possible. The other answer, which is, is nowhere near, it's, it's neither, well, actually it is spiritual, but it's not environmental. I'm um, a very enthusiastic motorcyclist. So oh. there is nothing, yeah, singing in a band was a great way. And the, the brief time that I did it was a brilliant way to be present in the moment. And I draw and I paint and that helps to be present in the moment. Um, but you can't be riding a motorcycle for being present in the moment, because if you're not present in the moment, <laughs> you fall off. Really simple. So true. So, and it's lock into a kind of zen peace when you're on a bike and it's going well and you're or if you're doing off-road stuff you're super focused and super intense but yeah i love it and um i love it even more when we're all riding electric bikes and that's not yes. gonna be you know it's great that you and Matt mcgregor and charlie borman rode all the way from the southern tip of south africa to los angeles on electric bikes admittedly it was all about, will they make it to the next plot? <laughs> you know, that was it. It wasn't sort of like, yeah, will they come out of this alive? But yeah. I look forward to being able to combine that because I am conscious that, you know, I'm, I'm bombing around on something that's pumping out carbon. You know, I may have an electric mm -hmm. car, but I've, I've very much got an old-fashioned motorbike. But, mm -hmm. um, but that's, that's a 
a big joy for me and keeps me in touch with reality and makes you realize we're only here for a short period of time. So, so nothing true. should be taken for granted. You know, if you, if you ride a motorbike and you don't, you know, you and you believe in karma, you've got to be really careful. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. You've got to live, you've got to live a good life. <laughs> you do. It's important. Yeah. Don't be horrible to people. That's or it. So, the That's next time you go off road on a trail, something unfortunate will happen. <laughs> yeah. That branch will get you just there. <laughs> yeah. so. But I want to ask about your drawings because I've seen like you have like several, like you're involved in several like charities. One of them is like you drawing and you sell those. Can you tell us more? Because I'm very curious. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I've, ever since I was, when I moved from Bristol when I was 16, I was the outsider at a new school and I wasn't, I wasn't the most uh, confident uh, or, or outgoing individual. Um, and my way of getting, you know, I, I had enough about me that I could make comments in class that would make people go, what? You know, that, you know, you could be sufficiently, you were witty, you were okay. And, and so I just like sit down and, and I got given a sketch pad in, when I was doing art in the sixth form. Um, my tutor said, hey, you should draw every day. I went, okay, I'll, I'll draw every day. And I started drawing. And then I just started drawing the kids around me in the sixth form. And they'd come, hmm, what's this? <laughs> and then, yeah. you know, as you're dealing with the, the age-old problem of how do I get to talk to girls? Well, if you sit there and go, do you mind if I draw you? You know, <laughs> it gives you an opportunity to really intensely, and as long as it's good, as long as yeah. it's flattering. Yeah. No pressure. <laughs> You're, you're a little bit further in than you would have been. So it's, it, drawing was a mass, has been a massive part of my life ever since. And I, I would have loved to have gone to art school, but um, because I was the first kid in the family who had a chance to go to university, that, that sadly didn't happen. Um, yeah. But, you know, I think if I'd have gone to art school, I'd have still ended up doing the same thing. I'd have just had a slightly more entertaining three years. I probably would have ended up managing bands at art school. And, you know, I mean, Graham... Went to, Graham Coxon went to art school. Jarvis Cocker went yeah. to art school. You know, so many great bands that I love all went to art schools. It's an art education, I think, is one of the greatest educations in life. And I think I think art should be on the school curriculum in the same way that that maths and English is. You know, if you yeah. if you think like an artist, if you think creatively, then you can be Steve Jobs. You know, Steve Jobs is an example of you know, you put him together with an engineer mm. and he's got an idea and that idea comes from a, a creative head and he turns that rudimentary product into something really special. So I'm a, I'm a massive advocate for art schools and art education. Um, so I've kept doing it and, you know, I, you know, when I do an exhibition or something like that, it feels, you know, I, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that, you know, uh, I've, I've been able to live a, a good life on the back of, of what I've done. So I don't need to sell pictures to make money. So if I sell pictures, it's great to be able to give the money to charity. Um, so I've always tried to, to do it that way around. Um, and, you know, there's, we could all give a hell of a lot more for ch to charity. And I'm, I'm involved with a charity called Earth Percent. And we're campaigning to try and get people to give 1% of their charity to the environment, uh, to wow. other charity, 1% of their income to the environment. Now that can seem like, oh my God, really, really? And it's just like, well, 
how do you feel about you know your great grandchildren probably not being able to live i mean yeah. like nada great grandchildren no great grandchildren it's over it's over by then in 100 years time everything's going really downhill 150 years time it's over you yeah. good with that you know it's like one percent one percent of your salary yeah a lot of money it's i appreciate not. i appreciate one percent of all is is you know i'm not suggesting that everyone in society should do it but i'm certainly saying maybe some of the people who've been able to sell their catalogs for hundreds of thousands of millions of pounds mm. could maybe think about giving one percent of that to um an ecological charity and our charity is about you know encouraging people to give money and and guiding them to where they can give money you know we're not you know we've got a lot of environmental um, specialists that we work with yeah. that can help people take that money and you know take it on to other places we're, we're at the beginning and you know it's i it, it brings me great hope in regards to the environment when i see jeremy clarkson talk about his concern that the insects are dying out on his farm and if i can if we can convince jeremy clarkson <laughs> yeah. this is a big environmentally yeah, sound then and if we can have a radical shift in the world's view that potentially could happen tomorrow in america then we've got a chance yeah if we carry on the way we are but we'll see we'll see i know the universe wait and... gave us the freedom to fuck up. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> Thanks, exactly. universe. Thank you. <laughs> and Mike, we have one last question for you, which we've been asking all of our guests on this podcast. Oh, yeah. So it's, a, it's, do you believe in time travel? That's interesting. I, um, I believe that the, the energy with inside you, the, the, I, I really believe that you, you and I, we're not what we think. We're not what we feel. We're certainly not these bodies. We're not Mike or Louise or Moses, you know, or, you know, Victor. We, we are, we're the thing behind all that, with that somehow spark of energy. And I believe that when, you know, my, my body's finished on earth, that energy goes out and goes into all the other energy out there. And then that energy comes back in again. I like so that. I, the one that works for me the one i can understand and that's very much what i learned from paramahansa yogananda and that's been the only philosophy of life that's that's really made sense to me so in terms of you know i could get on my bike ride to the post office and get run over by a lorry and then i could suddenly be back in um 150 years ahead as a fireman desperately trying to put out huge <laughs> forest fires or maybe a panda running through the trees trying to escape forest fires or whatever so i think you could travel like that mm. i mean i certainly believe we have past lives you know and i i i definitely feel that you know i mean i i i, I don't know what i've been before i i haven't gone that way but i haven't i haven't really gone to a spiritualist and, and sort of like tried to find out mm. but um i think i could necessarily travel back in time but i certainly think 
after you know my body dies i could well i i, I will pop up in the future and i may be out there my energy may crop up in some kid trying to write a song or whatever um, but it could turn up in a tree or a hedgehog or a panther or whatever you know or you know everything's got energy even inanimate objects have an energy to them but i tell you what i see try and travel being it's just like i listen to hanging on the telephone by blondie yeah and i'm taken back to the first time of the pops or the first time i heard denis by blondie on top of the pops or the first time i heard mike oldfield's tubular bells being played in our music class at school when i was got 12 years old i think that would have been you know i hear songs i hear waterloo by abba and i'm years old watching the eurovision song contest with my dad you know i hear some classical music and i'm transferred I, I'm, I'm traveling back to being a five-year-old i'm yeah. totally there so i believe in the deep spiritual relation between music and you know your experiences and that takes you back to the past so definitely i mean I, I think music is the is the greatest form of time travel I, I would go out i usually go out and run and listen to annie mack on a friday and that's my you know electronic beats all the way great yeah. to run to but if I need some extra motivation, not that Annie's not the most motivating human being on the planet, but if I need some extra motivation, I'll listen to sort of like a, a, a playlist of my favorite songs. And I've got playlists from every year of my life of all the songs that I listened to during that year. That. And I listen to one of them. And that's just incredible because no matter how far I run, you know, I'm always going to be hearing songs. And as soon as I hear that song for three minutes, it's going to take me right back. I to what that. was going on when I heard that song for the first time. Yeah. Be that at a party or, you know, that's the thing when I hear, I need to read, you hear, you know, I hear Hong Kong Garden by Susie and the Banshees. It takes me back to seeing them for the first time on top of the pops when it was just incredible. And then it takes me back to when I was a complete Susie and the Banshees obsessive when I was 17, 18. And then I can remember ringing up a mate of mine. I was in Bristol. He was in Liverpool. And there was a party going on at his house. And Hong Kong Garden was playing in the background. And I was just thinking, oh, God, I want to be at that party so badly. Um, and that all, all of that comes just together yeah, when you special. listen to it. It's like, boom, I'm 18 again. Yeah. And who doesn't want to be 18 again, you know, to feel yeah. how you felt? And, and, but having said that, I, I really do... Even though I'm a man in his mid-50s, I still have the same passion and enthusiasm and excitement that I had as a teenager. And I hope to God I never lose that. So much. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, so you much. Mike. It's Thank been amazing. So no, it's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Huge thanks to Mike Smith there for the inspiring chat and so many cool stories in there as well. Oh my goodness me. So cool. I really, really enjoyed that chat. It was so much fun. Don't forget to follow us and subscribe. You can also catch highlights and more on our socials. Chuck the Great Official. Next time, we'll be chatting to the legendary music promoter, Connell Dodds. He's promoted shows with acts including Massive Attack, Lana Del Rey, and Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Not to mention, co-promoted one of Britpop's era's defining events, two sell-out 125,000 capacity Oasis shows at Nebworth in 1996. The iconic shows. You don't want to miss it. 
See you next week.